Good morning. Uh, Merry Christmas. Uh, today's reading will be Luke 19, verses 1 through 10. If you're reading from the Blue Pew Bible, you can find today's reading on page 878. Uh, once again, uh, we'll be reading from Luke 19, verses 1 through 10. And if you're reading from the Blue Pew Bible, you can find today's reading on page 878. Uh, please, re- uh, please rise for the reading of God's holy and inerr- inerrant word. Okay. Uh, Luke 19, verse 1 through 10. He entered Jericho and was passing through. And behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was rich. And he was seeking to see who Jesus was. But on account of the crowd, he could not because he was very small in stature. So he ran on ahead and climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him. For he was about to pass by, pass that way. And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. So he hurried and came down and received him joyfully. And when they saw it, they all grumbled. He has gone in to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. And Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor, and I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, since he also is the son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. Let me pray for us once more. The gracious God, we thank you for this Christmas morning a chance to be able to gather and to sit under the reading and preaching of your word. So now we pray for the help of the Holy Spirit to come and to accompany the preaching of Scripture that our hearts may come alive and our hearts may respond rightly in obedience and in greater faith. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, Merry Christmas to you all. I think it is exciting and it's extra special when Christmas Day falls on the Lord's Day. And we get that rare opportunity to share a Christmas morning together as a church family. I'm sure you have your own Christmas feast planned later for this day. And you'll be opening up gifts uh, with all of your family. But, But this morning, right now, we get a chance to feast on God's word. And to receive a gift, the gift of the Holy Spirit who comes to illuminate the truth of Scripture, helping us to see Jesus for for who he really is, to see him as the incarnate Son of God, who is our King, our Savior, and our friend. So I'm so happy to share this Christmas morning with you. Now, during this Advent season, uh, we've been in a sermon series that we are calling Jesus Came To. So in the past weeks, we've been considering various passages where Jesus explicitly explains in the Gospels why he came to earth. So we saw how in Luke 4, he said that he came to proclaim good news. And in Luke 12, he said he came to cast fire on the earth. And this morning, we're going to look at another text from the Gospel of Luke where he specifically tells us why he came into this world. And friends, if you, if you really think about it, 
It's quite amazing that Jesus could even say this. I mean, if I were to ask you, why did you come into the world? You wouldn't even have an answer for that. I mean, how many of us decided to be born? How many of us can say with bold confidence, this is the reason why I came into the world? None of us. I mean, we were just born. We had no choice in that. We had no say in the matter. We entered into this world without any clue as to why we are here. But consider Jesus. Jesus became a man just like us. He's a human being. But at the same time, at the same time, it's clear, it's clear that he's not just like us because unlike us, he consciously decided to come into the world. Unlike us, he knew his purpose for coming. He knew exactly why he came that first Christmas morning. And he spells it out once again here in this morning's text. He says in Luke chapter 19, verse 10, For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. In other words, Jesus came that first Christmas morning on a rescue mission. There are lost sheep that need to be found. There are lost coins that need to be recovered. There are lost sons and daughters that need to be brought back home and restored in the right relationship with the Father. That, my friends, is what Jesus came to do. Now, what we're going to see in today's text is that the very people who are considered lost, the ones whom Jesus came to seek and to save, to find and to rescue, we're going to see that they very well might surprise you who is found in that category of the lost. And what I, of course, hope that you come to discover is that you too are included in this category of the lost. That Jesus came that first Christmas morning to seek and to save even you. That's what I hope you get out of this morning's message. And so as we walk through uh, this story of Christ and his encounter with the wee little Zacchaeus, we're going to flesh out the identity of the kind of person that Jesus came for. The kind of person that Jesus came to seek and to save can be described for us in three different ways. If you want to follow along, if you look inside your bulletin, you'll see an outline listing these three descriptions. First, Jesus came for those we would least expect. Second, Jesus came for those we might least respect. And third, Jesus came for those who will bear the fruits of repentance. All right, so let's first consider how Jesus came for those that we would least expect. And, and that really would have been the reaction for anyone reading Luke's gospel for the very first time. You see, friends, when, when we're studying biblical narratives like the Gospels, sometimes it's important to put yourself in the shoes of one of the characters within the story, right? I mean, you, you, you would be thinking about what it would have been like to be Zacchaeus that day or what it would have been like to be one of the people in the crowd seeing this conversation between Christ and this tax collector. I, I think that's a really great way to, 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 interpret, to, uh, to study a text and to, to draw out helpful things from a passage that way. But, you know, when you're reading a gospel narrative, sometimes it's helpful to also put yourself in the shoes of the original audience of the gospel. So to imagine yourself as 
a reader or as a listener of Luke's gospel, hearing it for the very first time, all the way from start to finish. Put yourself in those shoes and then consider what kind of ideas, what kind of assumptions would you have about certain characters in a story or about the overall plot line in general by the time that you arrive at this particular text. Looking at it that way gives you an entirely new perspective and it helps you to gain some new insights. And so what I would argue is that the reader of Luke's gospel, if he or she had been paying close attention up to this point in the gospel, would be thoroughly confused as to what to think about a rich chief tax collector. You'd be confused. You'd be wondering, are, are we dealing with a protagonist? Or an antagonist? Is this a good guy or a bad guy? You really wouldn't know at the start of chapter 19. Because by the time you arrive at this chapter, on one hand, you'd assume that anyone rich or anyone in a position of authority would tend to be outside of the kingdom of God and would tend to be antagonistic towards Jesus. That's, that's just the MO of all the rich people and all the ruling authorities who have encountered Jesus so far in Luke's gospel. Readers would be very familiar with the rich fool in Luke 12 who assumed that Anyone uh, who dies, that, that he who dies with the most toys wins. And we saw how he's a fool for thinking that way. We would have already met the rich man in Luke 16 who disregarded poor Lazarus and ended up uh, finding himself in Hades. And we would still remember the unrighteous judge a chapter earlier in the beginning of chapter 18. This judge who ruled unsympathetically. And then in the middle of chapter 18, we would have encountered the rich ruler who walked away from Jesus sad because he loved money more than he did the kingdom of God and its king. And so when we're introduced in Luke 19 to a chief tax collector who's also rich, a reader is going to naturally assume that this is someone outside of the kingdom. This is yet again someone who's going to oppose Jesus. But then, at the exact same time, readers of Luke's gospel might assume that tax collectors and sinners are actually welcomed in the kingdom and that they're going to be friends with Jesus because we would have read about Jesus calling Levi the tax collector to be his disciple back in Luke chapter 5 and feasting at his house with other tax collectors and sinners. And we'd still remember the woman of the city in Luke 7 who was described as a sinner who loved much because she was forgiven much. And we would have just read about the humble tax collector in Luke 18 who went up to the temple to pray, who couldn't even look up to heaven, but he beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And so when we're introduced in Luke chapter 19 to a rich chief tax collector who's also labeled a sinner by others, well, then a reader is going to naturally assume that this must be a sympathetic character because we know by now that Jesus is a friend of tax collectors and sinners. That's how he's described in Luke chapter 7. So I think you can see how readers at this point 
would be confused as to what to think about this man named Zacchaeus. I mean, this story is, is just pulling out the rug from under all of our stereotypes and all of our assumptions about who's in and who's out when it comes to the kingdom of God. And I think all of that is intentional. I think it's intentional that Jesus sought out Zacchaeus of all people in order to, to break our stereotypes and to, to challenge our assumptions. The whole point is that we can't assume too much just based on someone's outward status. In other words, you can't judge a book by its cover, right? Or if we were to use a biblical analogy more familiar to Luke's gospel, you can't judge the health of a tree without taking time to observe its fruits. That's a familiar analogy that Jesus would use. In other words, you can't, you can't just assume a sycamore tree is going to be, be more healthy than an olive tree versus a fig tree. You don't know just looking at the type of tree. You don't know yet. You can't tell if it's a good tree until, until you water it, until you observe it, until you see what kind of fruit it has to bear. That's what Jesus taught us back in Luke chapter 6, where he said, For no good tree bears bad fruit, nor again does a bad tree bear good fruit. For each tree is known by its own fruit fruit. So friends, the whole point here is that we shouldn't make too many assumptions about Zacchaeus just based on his status or position, just because he's rich or just because he's a tax collector. I don't automatically assume he's in the kingdom because he fits the stereotype of someone in the kingdom. And at the same time, don't, don't assume he's outside of the kingdom just because he doesn't fit the bill. You really have to wait. You really have to observe his actions. How does he respond to the call of God? When you water him with the word of God, what comes out of him? What kind of fruit does he produce? That's what you need to look for. And friends, of course, the same goes for us. We can't be too quick to make judgments about each other. I know that many of us or some of us may have grown up in, in, in a harsher environment or, you know, we might have some, some rougher edges. And, and it might not seem like we're in the kingdom, but actually those are the very people who are, who are very close to the kingdom or already in it. And then, of course, there are those who are very religious, very intelligent, very put together. And so we just automatically assume they're in, but they, in fact, can be very far from the kingdom. They seem to have it all together, but in actuality, they're lost. And if you just think about it, many of us today would look at someone like Zacchaeus. If we saw a Zacchaeus today, we would just assume that this guy's got it made. I mean, just, just put aside his, his particular occupation and all the, all the particular stereotypes that would have been found uh, in the first century. But just focus on, focus on what he, he's achieved when it comes to money and career. When it comes to money and career, this guy has it all together. We, on the other hand, so many of us are, are dissatisfied when it comes to money and career. Maybe it's because, you know, we're still in school, we're not making any money, and, and there seems to be no end in sight for how many years we're going to be studying. Or for those of us who, who are working, maybe we're, 
we're struggling at work. We just feel so lost in our career path. We're just wondering, is this what I'm going to be doing for the next you know, 30 or 40 years of my life? I feel so lost. But that's why, that's why we need to encounter a man like Zacchaeus. Because he demonstrates that even someone at the pinnacle of his career, someone who is enormously wealthy, can still feel very much lost and, and be unsatisfied with his life. That's why he's on a search. That's why he's looking for something else. I mean, we just assume based on his status and position that, that Zacchaeus is happy because we would assume that's how we're going to feel if we could ever achieve his status or we can get to his position, we think we're going to be happy. But that's, that's the very false assumption that Scripture time and time again tries to expose. Money and career were never intended to be the answers. They were never meant to satisfy you. I mean, just look at Zacchaeus. He's doing well when it comes to money and career, and yet he's still lost. He's still in need of rescue. So it turns out that, that Jesus came to seek and to save those we would least expect. Those we thought were doing just fine. And of course, that ultimately teaches us the invaluable lesson that every one of us is like that. Every one of us is lost and in need of rescue. We all need to be sought after. We all need to be saved. We all would be lost and dead in our sins if Jesus didn't go on a rescue mission to come and find us. I mean, did you notice how, how the story begins by portraying Zacchaeus as the seeker, he's the one going around seeking, but it ends by describing him as really the lost one who's being sought after by Jesus, who's really the ultimate seeker. So praise God. Praise God that we have a good shepherd who won't give up until all of his sheep is found. Jesus is going to keep on searching, even if that search leads him through the valley of death. We have a good shepherd who is willing to lay down his life for his sheep. That, my friends, is our Savior. That's the one whose birth we have gathered here this morning to celebrate. That's our God. Now, just as he came to seek and save those we would least expect, we can also say that he came for those that we might least respect. Like I mentioned earlier, readers of Luke's gospel by this point, they would be sympathetic to a tax collector. Uh, by this point, the tax collector comes across as the good guy. But that definitely would not have been how Jesus' contemporaries would have viewed a tax collector. They would have been viewed as routinely despised and rejected people. Now, we're told here about this particular tax collector named Zacchaeus that he was small in stature and because of the crowd, he couldn't see Jesus. Now, small in stature obviously re refers to his physical size. He, he, he's a smaller man and he couldn't see over the crowd. And so we're told he had to climb up a tree in order to get a better view. And, and, and that makes total sense. I, 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 I recently went to, I, I went with Melvin to the, uh, Astros World Series parade in downtown. And, you know, both of us are, are relatively tall guys, but 
we had such a hard time being able to see over the crowd. There, there were just so many people in the crowd that day that fans were literally climbing up trees. I mean, guys were literally climbing up street poles in order to get a clearer view. So it's not surprising that in this situation, Zacchaeus would scamper up a tree. But friends, what I want to point out is that the crowds impeded his view in more than just one way. You see, Zacchaeus wasn't only physically small, he would have been considered socially small. He had a short standing, a short, he was short in, in social standing. He would have been lumped in the same boat as, as all the various socially marginalized characters that a reader would have encountered earlier in chapter 18, whether it be the persistent widow or the humble tax collector or the little children or the blind beggar that we're introduced to right before this passage. But none of them, none of them would have been considered as bad as a tax collector in those days. Tax collectors were universally despised. They were considered traitors to their own people. They were the ones shamelessly working for, for our Roman occupiers. They were viewed as cheaters and extortionists. They were the ones getting rich off the backs of their neighbors which probably explains Zacchaeus' great wealth. So knowing this, knowing that this is how people perceived tax collectors, not, not, not to mention chief tax collectors, then you can understand the shock when people hear Jesus say in verse 5, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. Now, that would have been considered scandalous because no self-respecting, God-fearing teacher of the law would be caught dead sharing table fellowship with tax collectors and sinners. So just listen to the reaction of the crowd in verse 7. And when they saw it, they all grumbled. He has gone in to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. Now, back in Luke chapter 5, and also in Luke chapter 15, we saw that it was the Pharisees and the scribes who were grumbling whenever Jesus would eat with tax collectors and sinners. But now in our text, everyone is grumbling. They all grumbled, it says. And so, of course, the implication here is that we're all guilty. Everyone, not just the Pharisees and scribes, but everyone is guilty of bias to one degree or another. And that, now for us, it, it may not be towards tax collectors, but we all have a bias. We all have bias towards someone. There's some kind of person out there who would make us grumble if we ever saw them on the receiving end of God's kindness, of God's mercy. And I, I'm, sure that, I'm sure there are, are some crimes or some offenses or some behaviors that you consider to be so reprehensible to the point that you would grumble at the thought of that person dining with the people of God at the Lord's table. I'm sure there are some people out there who hold to a particular political persuasion that you just find deplorable. Or they've done something in the past that you would just consider irredeemable. And you just might grumble at the thought of that person being a child of God, 
being a fellow brother or sister in Christ. You would grumble at that. But of course, that's the whole point. That's what we have to come to grips with, that Jesus very well might have come for those that we least respect. Did you notice in our text, did you notice how Jesus told Zacchaeus that I must stay at your house today? I I must come over. This is a divine necessity. He must do this. And I, I think it's so necessary that Jesus was so intentional to track down Zacchaeus, hiding all the way up there in that tree, because Zacchaeus was the exact kind of person that Jesus needed to share table fellowship with in order to prove a point, in order to illustrate the wondrous love of God and his immeasurable grace. He needed to find Zacchaeus. He needed to come over. You see, earlier in chapter 18, after the, the rich ruler sadly walked away from Jesus, the Lord explained to people how difficult it is for the rich to be saved. He said that it was, quote, easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Now, it's because Jesus had just said that earlier. And because it truly is that difficult, I think that's why Jesus said that his staying over at Zacchaeus' house is a must. This has to happen. It's imperative that he now demonstrate the power of God to accomplish the seemingly impossible, to prove that there is no one out there too difficult for the Lord to save. I wonder if some of you here who who are not Christians, or maybe you just are not sure right now if you would even consider yourself a Christian, I wonder if you think you're too difficult to save. I I, I wonder if you think that maybe you've just sinned one too many times or, or, or you just crossed way too many lines. I mean, maybe it's true. Maybe it's true that you don't fit the, the, the stereotype of a typical Christian. M- maybe certain religious groups or certain religious people would have a hard time taking you seriously or seriously considering you one of them. Maybe you don't feel comfortable in church because you feel like people are always judging you. Well, you know, my, my advice to you, my advice to you is to simply ignore the crowd. Don't let the crowd keep you from Jesus. Don't let the judgmentalism of others be a barrier keeping you from getting near Jesus. You go, you go and climb that tree if necessary. If that's what you need to do to see Jesus, do it. Are you, are you willing to endure judgmental eyes? Are you willing to, to bear the shame if it means you get to be close to Jesus? Zacchaeus was willing. You have to understand that for a man of his status, for a man of his position, running down the street and climbing up a tree would have been extremely shameful. That, that's behavior that you would have expected from a child, not from a rich chief tax collector. It was utterly embarrassing for Zacchaeus to do that. But he could care less. All he cared about in that moment was seeing Jesus. He wasn't going to let the crowd keep him from getting near Jesus. And so he ran. 
and he climbed. And Jesus noticed. Everyone else managed to somehow still look down upon Zacchaeus while he was up in that tree. Only Jesus looked up at him with loving and welcoming eyes. How others look at you, how others perceive you matters very little compared to how the Lord looks at you. The crowds may give you little respect, but Jesus, oh, Jesus is ready to give you abundant mercy. Well, Zacchaeus discovered this to be true. Based on his occupation, the crowd perceived him to just be this egregious sinner. But by the time he met Jesus, that was no longer him. Based on how he responded to Jesus' call, Zacchaeus proved to be a repentant sinner. Still a sinner, but a repentant one. And repentance is, if you think about it, really what Jesus came to bring. He came to save the lost by doing what? By leading the lost to repentance, by turning them away from the path that leads to destruction and to put them on the Calvary road that leads to life. That's what he came to do. And so here, my friends, is a third way to describe those who Jesus came looking for. He came for those who will bear the fruits of repentance. Those who will bear the fruits of repentance. You see, in most of the encounters that Jesus has with the lost, their particular moment of conversion is not actually depicted for us in the narrative. Usually what we're shown when we meet the character is not their moment of salvation. Usually what we see are all of the effects of their salvation. And so what this means is that at some point before verse 8, Zacchaeus got converted. Zacchaeus became a new creation. He became a new man with a new heart. He became a good tree with healthy roots. And so what we read about in verse 8, that should not be interpreted as some kind of boast. He's not saying, hey, Jesus, I did this, so now will you save me? Now am I in? No, no. Verse 8 is not a boast. Rather, verse 8 is a profession of faith and a clear expression of a repentant heart. So listen again to verse 8. And Zacchaeus stood and he said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, and notice there, he didn't address Jesus merely as rabbi, as teacher, but specifically he addressed him as Lord. And for characters in Luke's gospel, that, that was a clear profession of faith. He says, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor, and if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. This is not a boast. This is evidence that Zacchaeus has truly been converted, proof that he's been saved. His actions are consistent with the characteristics of a child of God. This is what you would expect of a Christian. And this is why Jesus replies in verse 9, Today, salvation has come to this house, since he also is a son of Abraham. Now, Jesus is not just pointing out the obvious. He's not just saying, Zacchaeus is a Jew. Yes, of course, we knew that. He's not just saying that Zacchaeus shares in Abraham's lineage. No, what Jesus is saying right here is he's making an emphatic point that Zacchaeus shares in Abraham's faith, which is far more important. By calling him a son of Abraham, the Lord is confirming that this sinner that everyone is grumbling about is truly a repentant sinner 
who is a child of God, secure in the kingdom. That's what Jesus is confirming. And we just go back to that, that tree analogy that the Bible just loves to use, and Jesus loves to use. When a bad tree has been truly converted into a good one, when, when those roots are truly made healthy, then we know that that good tree will inevitably produce good fruit. So back in Luke chapter 3, we're told that the people in Luke 3 were flocking to John the Baptist, and they were going to him to receive a baptism of repentance. And at the time, John was warning the crowds not just to go through a ritual that proclaims repentance, but he was warning everyone, what's more important is that you bear fruits in keeping with repentance. That's Luke 3, verse 8. John says, bear fruits in keeping with repentance. And later on in that chapter, we read this. Tax collectors... Tax collectors also came to John to be baptized, and they said to him, Teacher, what shall we do? And John the Baptist said to tax collectors, Collect no more than you are authorized to do. That's how you bear fruits in keeping with repentance. So for those tax collectors, for those in that particular occupation, the fruits of repentance looks to them like personal integrity, especially when it comes to the righteous use of their authority to collect taxes. You do it with integrity. That kind of consistent behavior is going to be evidence that you have a repentant heart. Now, if you go back to our text and our passage, I think there's even more evidence that Zacchaeus is truly changed, that he truly has become a good tree, that, that he truly has a repentant heart. I see three fruits of repentance worth pointing out in our text. Joy, generosity, and justice. First, joy. Notice with me how he responds to the call of Christ with joy. You see, after Jesus calls him and invites himself over, verse 6 says that Zacchaeus hurried and he came down from that tree and he received Jesus joyfully. So his obedience to Christ's call is not carry, carried out slavishly, but joyfully. And that's a good sign that you're a good tree. One way to know that you're a Christian is when you see after, after you've been watered with the word of God and, and, and you hear the call of Christ commanding you, you, if you see growing out of you, not just obedience, but a joyful obedience to the call of Christ, that is a good sign. That, that is a fruit of repentance. Second, generosity. Notice how Zacchaeus responds with a commitment to give half of his possessions to the poor. The, the Mosaic law required a tithe, but he goes well above that by selling half of his goods and giving the proceeds to meet the needs of the poor. Zacchaeus' generosity, you see here, is not motivated merely by a sense of duty, just, just doing what the law says. He's motivated by a sense of gratitude and a sense of love. See, after meeting Jesus, something just fundamentally changed within this guy. In all of his typical encounters with people, 
before Jesus, Zacchaeus, would be encountering people because he's there to collect taxes. But in this encounter with Christ, he's the one with the debt. He's the one who owes, but, but he doesn't owe money. He owes Jesus his life. He owes his heart. And after handing over his heart, Jesus transformed it and gave it back. And Zacchaeus, this man who used to love collecting money, I mean, that was his joy to collect money. Now, after becoming a follower of Jesus, he loves giving money. That's his joy now, giving money away to help others in need. That's what transformed within him. So friends, what this means is that for those of us who call ourselves Christians, and yet if there is a lack of generosity in our lives, well, then something's wrong. Perhaps you need to reinspect the roots. Perhaps you need to reexamine your heart because one of the fruits of true repentance is a heart of generosity. Zacchaeus definitely now has it. What about you? Do you have a heart of generosity? Is that your joy to help others? Not to collect, but to give. To give to the needs of others. And third, justice. Notice how Zacchaeus, is, Zacchaeus responds with a commitment to make restitution. That is to pay back whoever he wronged. He cares about justice, about making things right. He says, quote, and if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. That right there demonstrates a heart that goes way beyond just sticking to the letter of the law. Because you see, in Mosaic law, if you defraud someone, what you're required to do is to give the money back that you defrauded plus an additional 20%. That's what the law required. That's what restitution requires. That's justice according to the law. But Zacchaeus commits to give back whatever he defrauded, plus 400%, fourfold what he took. That is way more than what justice requires. And so again, what this means is that for those of us who call ourselves Christians, we need to ask if a keen sense of doing justice is animating our hearts. Have we wronged anyone? Have we committed an injustice towards someone? Are we willing to make things right? And more than that, are we willing to go beyond the letter of the law to embrace a spirit of generous justice? Not just giving back to people exactly what they're owed, whether that is an apology or maybe actual compensation, not just focusing on, on exactly what you, what you owe them. A spirit of generosity is concerned not just, not just with doing what's right, but with doing what's good for others, especially for those that you hurt. Even if, if that comes at great expense to yourself, you want to do this for their good. That's what we see Zacchaeus doing. That's how you know if you truly have been transformed into a good tree. This is Zacchaeus bearing the fruits of genuine repentance, joy, generosity, and justice. So what about you? 
Do you see those fruits in your life? Church, I think it's so important that we examine our hearts to see if these same fruits are growing, if they're bearing forth in us. But if you're, if you're being honest with yourself and, and you come to realize that joy, generosity, and justice are just lacking, well, then what do you do? What do you do? Well, I know that some of you are probably going to get anxious at this point. You're probably going to fall into despair, wondering about the status of your heart. But friends, the answer is clear. The answer is clearly there in our text. Our passage tells you what to do. Go see Jesus. Go look to him. That's what you do. And like Zacchaeus, you're going to find that Jesus has already been looking for you. No matter how how far you stray, no matter how far you feel from God, you're going to come to discover that Jesus has been looking for you far longer than you realize. And he also climbed a tree to find you. But his tree, unlike Zacchaeus's, included nails and a crown of thorns. You think about it. Jesus went to hell and back to find you. This is our God. This is the one who's seeking us. So when you stand before such a wonderful Savior, all you need to do is to look at him with fresh eyes of faith. Just look at him. Look to Jesus. Receive his mercy. Bask in his love. Let his kindness lead you to repentance. May you then rest in his peace on this blessed Christmas morn. Father, we thank you for gathering us on this Christmas morning to remind us that you sent your son on a rescue mission for the lost, for us. And that Jesus, he went through the valley of the shadow of death. He went to hell and back to find us. Thank you, Jesus. And now we respond to you with our utmost praise. In your name we pray, amen.